as we continue in this Rhythm and Rules series, let me just introduce myself. I'm going to speak about this in the next series of this, uh, speak about relationships in this next of our theme of Rhythm and Rules. And it's about developing regular practices that keep us rooted in fundamentally our relationship with God and provide support for a life that's fruitful. And that's what this series has been about. You might have come across the trellis that David has uh, been working on and we're reminded of each week. And I should tell you that my background is in landscape gardening, as some of you know. And so I love this image. This is just a treat every Sunday night to come and think about trellises. Janet and I do lots of stuff together, talking about relationships tonight, so I thought I should just begin there. We cycle, but she's too slow. Uh, We shop together, but I'm too distracted. Uh, And we garden, which is where we seem to be amazingly compatible. And uh, I could get distracted talking about gardening, but I do want to keep on the subject. David's drawing, as we've been looking at it, includes these three verticals uh, through which we've been thinking about the source of life. How do we survive? Where does our energy and life come from? But of course, these three things that we've been thinking about are not worked out in isolation from normal everyday life. They intersect everything that we do. And that's the thing I love about this illustration. It brings together the things that are so fundamental to our life, and it shows where they cross over. So the uprights are locked into how we relate, what restores us, and how we reach out to others. As I stand and talk about relating, I've been thinking about how unqualified I feel anyway, but at the same time, how good it has been to look at the way that this trellis can support growth and fruitfulness and display the wonder of God in friends and family that He's given to us. A couple of caveats just before we get into the the detail of this. And as I say, I'm going to be focusing a bit more on this part of the trellis. We're not exhibits. None of us who stand up at the front here and deal with these subjects are exhibits, not, at least not in the, to continue the gardening analogy, Chelsea Flower Show style, you know, where there's these prize blooms set up for everybody to gaze at and realize what we should aspire to. That's, that's not it at all. If I can demonstrate a little of what it looks like for somebody who has pretty twisted and distorted ideas about relationships to discover God in my ordinary struggles, then that's enough. And that's what I hope you pick up from tonight. And also, we're aiming to encourage structures that really support fruitful lives. And that's the focus 
I love trellises. I love the way they work. Uh, I love seeing a really good trellis. If you're looking for the latest in trellis engineering about load bearing and about uh, being sufficiently slimline that it doesn't uh, take over that wall, this isn't the right place. Combining load bearing strength with beauty without messing the whole thing up with real life kind of complications. If that's what you're after, you're going to be disappointed here. But we are going to think about family and about friends. And I've got a short clip that I'm going to show you about family life, at least about family life as it was envisaged in the 1950s. I'm not sure if this was ever actually a fact. And thankfully, I wasn't around to prove it. But this is from YouTube. You can watch the entire thing. But it has some important wisdom from the day and an example of the kind of mess-free relationships that are possible, at least on YouTube. So sit back and enjoy a date with your family. Napkins on the lap, the family awaits service. They converse pleasantly while dad serves. I said pleasantly, for that is the keynote at dinner time. It is not only good manners, but good sense. Pleasant, unemotional conversation helps digestion. Father serves mother first, then daughter. Then the boys. Don't worry, fellas, you won't get left. Help cut your meat, Junior? Of course. By example, older children can teach younger ones good table manners. No one starts eating until father has served himself. Always wait for the hostess, in this case mother, to begin eating before you start. Let father and mother guide the conversational trend if they desire. After all, they made all this possible and may want to talk over their day with each other. Tell mother how good the food is. Maybe sis rates a compliment too. It makes them want to continue pleasing you. I can see you can identify with a lot of that. Uh, it's just like life at our house as well. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of good things there, of course, but it's just locked into a little time warp and a bit of unreality where everything is stress-free and mess-free. I love this line, pleasant, unemotional conversation helps digestion. I think that should be the theme this evening. On the other hand, the McCann Advertising Agency did a survey on youth uh, all around the world, and the answers from every culture that they surveyed said when it comes to what people are really looking for, it wasn't so much the pleasant, unemotional conversation. It was something a bit more gritty. It was something that they could get their teeth into. And Almost every culture said a version of the same thing. What people are looking for 
is community and truth. That's what makes the difference. That's what I really want in my life. There's a desire to relate to how we're made, and that applies to every person here. We have a hunger for friendship. We want to connect deeply with one another. It might sound impressive to you to say that I have 615 friends. I don't know how many of you have. I'm sure there's a few people here who are well over the uh, 5,000 mark. Anybody got over 1,000 friends? You're prepared to admit it? No, no hands going up well. Uh, Facebook is good for some aspects of friendship building, of course, and uh, the question is, are they really friends? It's great for me as a prompt to remember names and remember details of people that I'm going to see, and usually at New Horizon where you're passing people uh, at a rate of knots, it's a way of just connecting the dots with people that you haven't seen for a year, maybe haven't seen since college or school or primary school. And somehow it provides a wee bit of that background wallpaper that helps us connect with people. But in terms of relationships, what is it? It's a highly selective collage of all of the best bits put together. The more palatable parts arranged, a bit like the meat on that plate that Father was serving, all neatly designed but it doesn't deal with the yearning for community. There is a story in the book that David lent me for this series about a man who set up a Facebook page. Soon he had 700 friends. He invited them to an evening together in his favorite restaurant. He got ready. He had 20 people who said they might come. He had 15 people who said they were definitely coming. And after getting ready, he waited at the restaurant and waited and waited. And eventually, one person arrived who he didn't know at all and had pleasant conversation about nothing. And then she quickly left. And with his 700 friends, he was left at the end of the night drinking by the bar on his own. And however we think about Facebook. It's a kind of 21st century version of that pleasant, unemotional conversation that aids digestion, although some people do post the most banal details about just had cornflakes with the kids. And uh, I wonder, do you allow tablets and smartphones at the dinner table? It's a bit of a hot topic. The thing about all of the technology that's designed to link us together is that it ends up driving us apart. And we all know that as we struggle sometimes with conversation, and it's so much easier to delve into our little private world of Facebook life. I'm sure you've seen signs like this. No Wi-Fi. Talk to each other. I remember when Amy went off on a school trip, they were told, no, no phones, we're going to talk to one another. And yet this 
hunger for truth and for community that's so central to who we are seems to elude us. What about church? Surely this is the place where it could be expected and experienced more than anywhere else, where truth and community are prized. That's what church is about. And yet this is not the normal experience for everybody. People are put off church because they're looking for truth and community, and some people go away disappointed. David spoke about fellowship this morning and what it really means, what this word conjures up, which speaks of deeply sharing together with someone in something. But for some, it is nothing more than sharing the same space, enduring polite conversation, and hoping others don't see the signs that life is kicking you in the teeth and family is far from happy. And I've spoken to people this week who have that experience and are no longer in church. So why is sharing not shared? What is it that's gone wrong? We don't have time, and tonight is not all about relationships. I'm just going to throw out a few thoughts on this subject and leave you to apply it. There's also a passage of Scripture that, again, I'd like to, to read together and to ask us, what is it from this that we should be taking and applying to our life? But the answers to why we're not sharing together the way we could and should, I think is very simple. The first is right back to the beginning, and that is rebellion. The desire for self to be on the throne rather than God has huge effects in our life. And if we rewind back to Genesis chapter 3, that ideal picture where the only thing that wasn't good in this creation, which had everything that was reflecting this creator God who was so wonderful in all his ways, was that man was alone and God made woman to be with him, to share together deeply. And there was that experience in this environment of sharing where in the evening, which we learned a couple of weeks ago, was the beginning of the day, working from a place of rest. As God walked in the garden with the evening, he would commune with Adam and with Eve. And yet, the demand for autonomy was so deep that mankind, through that whole opportunity for communion and sharing, back in God's face. And what did they get? Isolation. They were driven out of the garden. And surely, there's that reality in our hearts as we think about sharing together, recognizing that somewhere deep within us, there's still that autonomy. And for many of us, the rugged individualist is the ideal, the person who can be self-contained, who can go it alone, who doesn't need anybody else. Why? Because we want it our way. 
And the second reality is deception, because not only are we trying to put ourselves on the throne, but there is the evil one who is seeking to do everything to destroy God's image in us. There is an enemy of our souls who will wreak havoc in especially relationships. Why is that? Why is it relationships that he seems to target most of all? It's because relationships are the stamp of God in our lives that longs for more, the area where we are most easily destroyed. If you think of us being God's image bearers, it's not as if it's an image like a photographic image where we look like God. It is much more the kind of impression where into soft clay God places His hand and forms an image like Him. We're made in the image of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who said, let us make man in our image. And so, that's the image of God in us. We're made for relationship. It's so fundamental, and therefore, it's right in the center of Satan's targets as we think about him attacking God's image in us. And there's also damage our personalities and perceptions are so deeply affected by self and our aspirations for autonomy and by Satan that we adopt broken ways of relating, and we sometimes think they're normal. And so we post having cornflakes with the kids on Facebook and think that's normal. Or we're prepared to engage deeply in relationship and yet operate in a way that's totally inappropriate in terms of cultivating something good. And I want to think for a few minutes about what those are. There's a book written by Henry Cloud and John Townsend called Boundaries, and they have identified four different ways in which relationships are damaged and how we function when we get together. This isn't gospel, but it is, a lot of it is good sense. I don't agree with all of it, and I'll tell you what in a minute. But their four types are these. There are the compliance, the people who will do anything to keep the peace and who in relationship will simply agree whatever that challenge is. And it's to the point where relating is simply being a doormat, where we'll agree in order to keep the peace, accepting what is bad as if it were good. And I think we need to recognize the danger, for some people at least, of failing to say, this isn't the way it should be. I know in our family relationships, when Janet and I were going through a difficult time, we talked to my mom and dad. My mom, the ever optimist, always said, God has a plan. He'll work it out. And and she poured lots of good advice into our lives and prayed for us and supported us. But there were times where we wanted her to say, yeah, life stinks. This isn't the way it should be. This isn't good. And sometimes we need to be prepared to say, this is not good. Can we just face up to the fact that things are not really working the way they should? But the compliant doesn't 
really cope with that. On the other hand, there is the controller, and uh, they are the people who force others to comply with their wishes. And they just insist that this is the way it's going to be, no negotiation, the whole body language, the way that things are framed, the whole engagement with others is, I will tell you what to think, and then you'll agree that that's the best way. And that's often how relationships break down, because people are told in no uncertain terms, this is the way it is. Whatever the claim to truth is, it is a distortion and a damage to how relationships work. And there's the non-responsive person who seems to lack any sensitivity to the needs of others, and the problems that others have are purely a distraction. They're not going to respond to those issues at all. And uh, I did hear of one tutor in a particular college whose famous line, when anybody came with a an excuse saying, you know, I need another few days to just get this finished off, was, don't tell me your problems. I think I don't have enough problems. Take it away. And the non-responsive person is just totally blind to the issues in other people's lives that are clearly leading them to breaking point. It's too difficult. Don't distract me. And the last person is the avoider who keeps others away, and they deflect attention from their own needs, and they may ask questions about other people and say, well, their needs are so much greater than mine, I'm just not going to go there at all. My issues are nothing compared with others, what others have to deal with. And these guys have come up with, I think, a, a way of understanding where relationships are damaged that's helpful. Their solution is to put up better boundaries to make sure that we make clear boundaries between ourselves. I'm not convinced that's the answer. Maybe come back to that at the end if we've time. Someone told me they can no longer relate to people in church because they've all got degrees and really their lives are all together. And they sit on the side because they don't really fit. And people would be horrified if they knew the real struggles that that person had. And so it was easier really to avoid people than be disappointed by them. So what is realistic? What should we be looking for when it comes to friendship? Wordly experience, our culture, I think, says don't get close. Don't let the walls down. My brother after his first wife walked out on him, said, I was too trusting. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have allowed that to happen. And yet, we're called into a relationship 
where broken things can be made whole and where the pieces of our lives that are so fragile and damaged can be brought back into line. And God is building us together. The church is people, not buildings. Fitting us together into something that will bring glory to His name. So where do we look for something that will give us a rule, a set of expectations as we look at one another in our friendship circles, in our church life, in our family relationships? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 to 12 has this beautiful passage arising out of all of the uh, meaninglessness that uh, occupies so much of the thinker as he looks at life and wonders, what's the point of it all? And here he is with these words, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So a question, as we think about this subject, what is it that we're looking for in friendship? And what is it that we should be expecting as we dig into God's Word and think, what does a relationship today look like in the 21st century with all of the challenges and pressures and realities of life? Well, here are five things that we can look at and draw strength from, from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And the first is effectiveness, because two are better than one, and together we are stronger. And that's a biblical reality. They have a good return for their labor. If anybody has done any wardrobe building from Ikea, you will know the truth of this, where when you're faced with these panels and you're trying to fit them together, two is infinitely better than one, especially at reading the non-text manual instructions. And life is like that. We're built to be doing things together. And when we're looking for friendship, there's nothing like doing something together to really help us, especially men who find it quite difficult sitting over a cup of coffee and actually talking to one another. But doing things together brings effectiveness and it brings closeness. And there's a sense of achievement as we say, yeah, I think you're on the right lines. Let's make this more effective. So let's be prepared for relationships that push one another on, not just sitting back uninvolved, unengaged, but where we see things that can be done better, getting alongside saying, can I give you a hand with this? And the second is related to that. It's one of support. 
And we may not fall down physically, and we may not struggle, all of us, with those kind of basic standing up exercises. Although somebody did say to me this morning, every day now, I thank God that I can stand up and walk straight and not be dizzy. And these basic things are important as well, but support is where we are able to really stand together and say we are for one another and we can help one another up. And, and that's what Christian fellowship looks like. And the third is comfort, which speaks, of course, of a family couple relationship, but it can apply much more broadly than that to friends as well, where when you've had that evening of good food, good music, few games, coffee as the sun goes down, and you're just sitting absorbing the comfort of friends and living on the buzz of being together, take that as a gift from God and say, this is real comfort for my soul. This is a friendship that's a soul friendship. And there's protection. And again, we may not face the kind of stranger pressures that the writer of the songs experienced, perhaps traveling on a journey from one town to the next, unlit lanes and hidden dangers, where two are better than one. But surely there are so many areas of our lives where two provides protection, especially in the disconnected internet world where we suddenly have access to stuff that is potentially so threatening to our lives. And I'm speaking particularly about men in a world where pornography just pours into the screen wherever we are. And protection is where we're saying to one another, will you help me? Will you watch over me? Will you be that kind of friend to me? Will you hold me accountable? At the end of my time at All Nations, after two years of rich friendship, we had a group of guys who met together every Wednesday night. A few of us were going out with girls at the time, and we knew that that gathering was a place of protection, and we knew that we'd be asking one another the question, well, how did it go last night, and where did you go, and what did you do? Not to be intrusive at all, but to say, how can I look out for you? And the writer of Ecclesiastes has this wonderful phrase, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Why? Because three are better than two, and two is better than one. And there is strength for couples in that third person in the relationship. And yes, you can spiritualize it and say we're certainly needing to have the strength of Christ in the midst of our lives. But more than that, there's often a danger, I think, when a couple become exclusive and go off without the company of others and without the support and the challenge and the strength of that third person who's part of their lives. So here's five things Ecclesiastes would say is part 
of what to expect and what relationships should look like with friends and family. These are of great value. And wisdom says we'll never develop these strengths alone. So let's be clear about what to expect. It requires giving out whatever we're expecting back. And that is something that we can easily forget. Whatever we're expecting, the underlying attitude should be, I need to invest that in the other person if I'm going to look for it from them. To maintain friendships, we need to look at ways in which we can invest what we hope to receive. And I remember at the end of that time at All Nations when we were being scattered around the world, there were people going to all countries and nations. And for me, there was a real sense of loss where we had been thrown together in this special experience of deep friendships that were really meaningful. The challenge at the time as we were being sent off was to reproduce what we had known in those new situations. And so if you're leaving good friendships like that, don't see it as the end, but rather an opportunity to reproduce that with somebody else. My friend Christian from Switzerland went to work in a slum in Manila, and I could see the relationships that we had at All Nations were being worked out with people who had nothing going for them and whose lives were enriched by his involvement. Tira from Holland went to work with prostitutes in Taiwan. She's still there with OMF, and she's investing in people's lives who have been robbed and damaged and broken. The reward, according to Ralph Emerson, of virtue is virtue. The only way to have a friend is to be a friend. As we try to park this, I want to just finish with a line from Robert Frost. And a couple of years ago, we had the chance to go to his farm. I love his poetry. It was the only thing in school that switched me on to poetry. And Mending Wall was one of the many poems that that I remember from school. If you know it, you'll know the story of this farmer who goes out in the spring. He goes around the border of his land with his neighbor, him on one side, the neighbor on the other, and they're picking up these boulders, some of them like huge footballs, trying to balance them on this wall. And nature and everything else conspires to break the wall down. And they hope that the boulder will stay in place at least until they have their backs turned and they move on to the next section of the wall. And they get right up into the woods where there's no animals between the lands and there's no reason to have a wall there. And Robert Frost is this line at the beginning and the end of his poem, something there is that doesn't love a wall. We call ourselves Windsor Baptist Church seeking to be a church without walls. And There is something, I believe, in us that's gospel that doesn't love a wall. We live in a city full of walls. 
and there's walls in our lives that keep people out and boundaries that seem to keep things under control. And this is where I would depart from a cloud a little bit because it's not boundaries that will keep us safe. It's wisdom and love applied carefully in all our relationships. And so as a church, as we think about growing relationships, friendships, families, let's be prepared to to say we don't need walls between us to keep people out. Rather, we need to be built together into a spiritual house. When Paul was writing to the Ephesians, he talked about how we've been brought together. And with this, we'll finish. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, that dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And may we know that peace as we think about rules and rhythms in our lives, not the rules of unemotional conversation that aids digestion, but something rich and meaningful where we're able to speak into one another's lives with effectiveness and support and comfort and protection and strength.